the thing that corporations do, which is a natural thing for them to do, is they they do not put people in positions where they're outside of the core comfort zone. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Daniel, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're the CEO at FlavorWiki and also the founder of the company. And FlavorWiki is a unique consumer insights and data management solution designed specifically for the food and beverage industry. That's right. And before we talk about your company, I'm interested to learn more about your personal background. Okay. You studied government in international relations. Did you ever have a different professional future in mind than becoming an entrepreneur back at that time? Uh, so I actually grew up in a, a small town in the Midwest in the United States. And, uh, you know, when I went to university, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I, in fact, I spent my first year of university at MIT studying engineering. And then uh, I started rowing for the rowing team there. It's a new sport for me. Uh, and then I, I actually transferred to, to Dartmouth to finish my studies there because of the opportunities in sport. In fact, I only ever wanted to be on, you know, the, the, the national rowing team for the first, you know, well, I, as my father says, you know, I, I majored in, in, in athletics, right? Like, so I, I really was totally focused on, uh, on just making the national team. Uh, um, and, uh, of course I was interested in, in my schoolwork, but, uh, my main focus up until I was, you know, 23, 24 was, was only that. And so it pretty much took over my whole life right. and coming out of that type of a background from those schools in America you typically end up in the finance industry and so yeah. the same thing happened to me you know I had a friend who worked at Goldman Sachs and I got an interview there and you know didn't really even know what they did and they gave me my first job because I needed to pay my rent true that was it <laughs> well, we talk about that in a, in a minute yeah. but I'm also curious because you also did your MBA at Stanford later on and you know people say that such an Ivy League education really is sort of a magic key that can open all kinds of doors how do you perceive the the benefits and the actual value of such a big MBA education I don't know if I actually agree with that, right? I mean, I think that I have an uncle that used to say that where you go to school makes a difference for your first one or two jobs. But then actually what makes much more difference is how you perform in, in your life. And now as I also employ people, that's also what I look for. You know, it, of course, you tend to have a network of people that can get you the first interview. Mm -hmm. But um, that's usually, I think, good when you come out of school. But after that, maybe not as much. The MBA thing is a little bit different. I mean, I think there you do have a chance to meet some exceptional people and then also track them, how they, they go on in life. And, and that can be useful. And, you know, at least for me was insightful and inspirational, but, you know, coming from the background I had, like, I had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I got to the East coast of the U S and it all seemed like a different world to me. So. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about your background, you also basically grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I think your grand grandfathers uh, were actually also entrepreneurs and run businesses themselves. Was there sort of a pressure for you to then also go down that path or at least consider it as a career option? Actually, exactly the opposite. Um, my Both my parents, they were high school sweethearts. So, you know, again, coming from super small town in America and uh my father's grandfather immigrated from Germany and um, started a business there 
um, making Christmas decorations actually. Nice. And they became a pretty large manufacturer of that. My grandfather ran it, my father ran it. And my grand, my grandfather on my mother's side purchased several businesses in the Great Depression. And one of which became a successful gas and electric utility, which is actually a really large gas and electric utility now in the Midwest and the US. Um, but actually because my father was forced into taking over the family business, he never wanted to do that. Um, my parents were absolutely against encouraging us to do anything. We had to study, of course, mm -hmm. but everything else was our decision, right? Nice. Um, which actually made it even harder because I didn't know what to do with my life. <laughs> uh, but no, that wasn't the case. But certainly I grew up around entrepreneurs, right? Like I grew up around people that take real personal risk, you know, like not, not the kind of entrepreneurship I think a lot of people think about with venture capital and stuff. It was none of that. It was, you know, basically brick and mortar manufacturing with bank loans and all the rest of that kind of thing. Right. So uh, I always had the idea that I would be interesting to, to have your own company. I guess for me, I sort of aspire to that because you want to try to do something better than your parents. I think that's a, that's a little bit of a natural thing. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly I, I, uh, I had no specific encouragement to do that. In fact, exactly the opposite. I had encouragement to go get a regular job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can understand from where your dad comes from, you know, being sort of forced to take over the family business. Yeah. Yeah. What did it actually do to him? Because I can imagine that this is also sort of a recipe for a not, not the probably most happy life if you are forced into something that you wouldn't have chosen yourself. Well, I guess I have to ask him about that. But, um, you know, look, we had a, a decent, great life growing up. You know, we had, you know, my father never had a boss, really, right? I, mean, I guess he had one job after college, but then his, his father asked him to take over the company as the oldest son. And, you know, I think that that's good. That's a good thing. And, you know, he did his job and they, they had a lot of really interesting things they did. Like they started going and manufacturing their product in China and East Asia in like the late 80s, early 90s when no one was doing that. And so I, I think that you can always find things that are interesting to expand your worldview that also are professional. And, you know, he, he was happy to get out of it and sell it. But, uh, you know, I think that, that for the most part, I, I, I definitely have a respect for the fact that if you have your own business, it, it runs you. You don't walk away on Friday night, right? right. <laughs> like, and I think, you know, entrepreneurs need to understand that too. So in, in that regard, you also, you know, you were basically exposed to the good, the bad, but also the ugly side of entrepreneurship, so yeah. to say. So what are some of the downsides that you realized, you know, entrepreneurship actually means? So for me personally, I love working. I love applying myself to something I'm interested in. So it doesn't feel like work, but there's a huge, uh, there's an impact on your family, right? Like I, I noticed that now I have a young child and I have a wife who is very much a working person. She doesn't have any you know, desire to be an entrepreneur at all. So, you know, the whole family comes along, right? Like, you know, when you're there on holidays and answering, you know, emails on your phone from the beach and all the rest of this stuff, like, yeah, there's the economic risk of it. But even that, I think, I mean, for me, I haven't really felt that impact because I'm, I'm older and, you know, we can always go get jobs if we need to. Right. But it's really like, you know, you're not there for all of those things that might be nice to be there for. The flip side though, and this is one of the big reasons why I wanted to become an entrepreneur now at this point in my life is that your children observe this, right? And for me, it was a valuable life lesson to observe this risk-taking, right? Like 
that you don't just kind of get out of bed in the morning and you know go be an investment banker and make three million dollars a year. Like I mean, this is the completely unrealistic thing. Like so few people to that happens to right. And this idea that you have to you know work and suffer for something, but then also you it feels like more of an accomplishment. I mean, I. I I think that's a valuable thing for children to watch, right? But there's definitely a toll, right? Like there's for sure, there's a cost. It's a social cost. It's not so much an economic cost. Yeah, right? makes sense. And before you chose to become an entrepreneur, you actually went down the other route, so to say. You went down the corporate route. So from 1999 up uh, to 2014, you worked for multiple corporates, some very well-known companies like Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank and also Groupon in the end. And I just wonder how has the, have these corporate jobs actually taught you or made you a better entrepreneur afterwards? In what way were these experiences and the people that you met there and so on and so forth actually helpful for you to then also jump ship and launch your own entrepreneurial career? So on the positive side, it made me uh, appreciate the capability of being independent and being able to kind of run after things, right? Like the main thing about corporate jobs, and I actually quite like working for other people. I don't have a problem with it at all. <laughs> like as long as I'm doing interesting things, I, I, I don't have to be independent for me personally. I think though the thing that corporations do, which is a natural thing for them to do, is they they do not put people in positions where they're outside of the core comfort zone. Like, yes, you can stretch yourself in some corporate environments, particularly in fast growth companies, it happens. Mm -hmm. But in a company that's stable, like a bank, you know, they're just not going to put someone who's not experienced in a role. Like, that's how you run a company, right? And so if you're someone who really likes to sort of stretch every day and try something new and like learn from it by failing, right? it's hard to find that in a company. And, you know, as an athlete, particularly, I like take, I was at that time, I was really interested in taking risks and having the reward of, of stretching myself. And I just never got that in my professional world. Mm -hmm. um, but man, it's, it's nice to have a paycheck every month, right? Like that's, it's a great thing. <laughs> like you, um, you know, like, you know, it, it, it frees you up to do other, other things. So I, I think I totally appreciate um, working I totally appreciate working still. I mean, my wife has a corporate job and it's one of the main reasons why I can do what I'm doing now. So, I mean, I think the world takes all kinds, right? Like, sure. and um, now though, as I also, as I deal with businesses, cause we're primarily a B2B company, I understand more the internal politics of these things. I think it's very easy to talk down about big companies and say, oh, you know, they're not innovative, they're not fast enough, they're not this, they're not that. Well, there are very good bureaucratic reasons for this, right? right. That are hard to overcome. And, you know, you have to respect that those are big animals. And, and I, now I've seen it from the inside. So it's... That certainly helps. <laughs> and even during your corporate career, you already did your first uh, footsteps as an entrepreneur, basically. Uh, you co-founded Botria in 2011, which was an outdoor-focused, recommendation-based e-commerce platform. So how did that idea come about? Why did you decide, hey, now is the good time to uh, launch my own company? So actually, that was a, a, a classmate of mine from Stanford that brought me into that. You know, he wanted to leave his... Uh, consulting job and he thought he had a good concept for social selling on the internet. I think the concept was a little bit late. It was already, you know, probably just a little bit too late, but I joined at his request, you know, I was interested too in doing it sure. because I had a lot of uh, contacts in the outdoor industry. Although it's a small industry, I actually knew a lot of these brands and manufacturers from my climbing days. So I was able to build some of the first like supply relationships for that platform. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, it was super interesting. It definitely gave me a uh, appreciation for how hard it is to start a B2C company. Or like when you have a B2C concept, you have to really resonate with the product market fit. And that that's tough, right? Um, so yeah, that's I think part of the reason why I started, when I started Flavor Wiki, I was like, yeah, you know, going to the B2B route was a better way for me as an as a, as a early startup, right? You know, trying to make money from making two or three or four dollars from each person on the street, like this is tough. It's a hard thing. And usually also requires a much higher upfront investment, right? Because you need to build up a brand, you need yes. to have certain marketing expenses to drive traffic and then convert them into customers. While with B2B, you can just go to multiple companies and don't really have to invest too much before you close your first deal. Right. It's much easier to kind of learn the product market fit because you can ask people, right? Exactly. Whereas when you're dealing with a B2C concept, you have a lot on the line in terms of like running costs and, you know, you need to find those things quickly, uh, which is why I think a lot of VC money goes in those directions because they're scalable if you hit it right. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and why did you focus on the recommendation-based model? What was that like sort of your killer feature or why was that the focus? Uh, I mean, I still think it's a problem in, in commerce today is like if you if you're new to a segment, right, it's very hard to get information, right? Like, obviously, I know the climbing segment. I've done a lot. I knew about a lot of the equipment. So that wasn't an application for me. But, you know, now, like, for example, I'm trying to buy some furniture for my house currently. Right. It's super difficult to find like structured information about these products on the web, right? I, I think that as much as the web has grown in terms of a retail platform, much of this has been focused around price, um, uh, selection, and logistics. And I still think that there's an open opportunity there for making better product matches to individual people. And I, I, I believe that we're going to see more of this in a second or third wave of e-commerce when you have more of these machine learning and data availability of information to actually, you know, c compose the information that's available to the, the consumer in a right. more constructive way. I, I still think that that opportunity is out there. I just think that, you know, the biggest companies just focus on logistics price and, and that's how they True. grow. Right. Yeah. Looking forward to the future that you just painted. I, I very much like that picture and idea. Yeah. I mean, think about how much time I don't like shopping, but think about how much time you spend making good product decisions. Right. right. And there's a lot of great products out there. There's even more great products out there in almost every category now because you have small businesses that can start. They can get on Facebook. They can market. There's all these kind of like micro brands, which are all really high quality. But how, how do you learn about these things? True. Right? Yeah. yeah. But then eventually you decided to... Uh, shut down Botria, and I just wonder what happened. Why did he decide to uh, uh, well, end the you company? Know, the, the guy who originally brought me into it was the co-founder. He moved back to San Francisco from London and got a, uh, a job at a company that had just started at that time, which now has been wildly successful. He's still the CEO of that. I mean, obviously, we're still very good friends, but I suppose I could have gone along with him at that time, you know, because it was just like super fledgling company, but I wanted to stay in Europe. You know, so. What was the name of the company? Uh, so the name of the company is called Ipsy. It's okay. a unicorn. Nice. Yeah. Uh, any regrets not joining him along that journey? Or? No, no. No. Okay. No. I mean, frankly, also it's like also watching that journey, and I won't disclose too much. But I mean, even these companies become very successful. Like it's a grind for the entrepreneurs. You know, at yeah. some point, like even there's also the flip side of this. Like your valuation can get so big that you don't know who to sell your company to. Right. And then you are, you are basically having to run the company with all the pressure of, you know, remaining profitable, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, 
that can go on for years and years and years um, and not be able to get liquid. Yeah. And then eventually IPO is the only exit scenario that you have left. And exactly. that can be yeah. very, very intense, I yeah. can imagine. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of value also in having a business that works, that is defensible in a, but you don't have to be the killer app that's right. like, of course, if you get involved with your early VC money, particularly at the very early stages, like either that's your goal or you're going to die because they're just going to kill you if you don't do it. But uh, I mean, these guys in particular, I think, did their funding rounds very smart. So, you know, and they've been super successful. So. But I think it's, it's calming and also important to notice that, you know, behind every success story that you read in the newspaper or see in social media, mm. it might look like an overnight success, but there's so much hard work failure and also ups and downs uh, behind that story that you don't even realize from looking from from the outside. And I think the risk really never goes away. It just has different magnitudes, right? Like, how do you measure success? Do you measure success by getting a certain amount of money? Do you measure success by building a company that has sustainable value? Like, what do you measure as success? And at every step along the way, even if maybe you get like a liquidity event and you get a bunch of money, maybe that's not success. Maybe success is I want to see my company grow and thrive. And there's always a risk every single day that that doesn't happen. Right. right? Yeah. You know, even the best people like Bezos, I'm sure wake up in the morning, they're like, you know, where's my next mountain to climb? And there's a possibility I'm not going to be able to do it. Right. I, this, sure. I don't think this ever goes away. Right. So that's a beautiful human side of things. Right. We all face the same or similar challenges in that regard. Yeah. And in the end, we all just like get old and hope that we can. Sure have a peaceful life and have others that love us, right? Exactly. <laughs> I think all this stuff is like, you have to see the wood from the trees too in this regard. Absolutely right. I also wonder, you worked in, in many finance companies and you also mentioned consulting in our prep call, something that you actually never did, but sort of if you could go back and probably give yourself an advice, consulting would be probably on the top of the list. Can you explain why? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, working for these companies like Bain, McKinsey, although I think they kind of, I bet students sort of view that as like the sellout option. <laughs> uh, every boss I've ever had that came from one of those blue chip consulting companies has been a really structured, great thinker, decent leader, you know, smart. I, I just think that when you spend time around a group of people, it's a little bit like business school. They try to do this. They try to like, bring a group of high performers together in one position, in one room or in one area. And then all of the different sort of facets of those high performance people rub up on you, right? Because you see, you know, there's no one, there's no one formula for high performance. There's many people with different angles and how they look at things. And I think that the consulting world is like that. Like there's a high filter and then you deal with a lot of companies and you see a lot of different industries. And that, it, to me, is even much more valuable than being a financier. And financing is a lot just about like marketing and numbers manipulation and modeling and things like that. But yeah, I think in in consulting, particular strategy or operational consulting, you really learn a lot about how to make stuff happen, right? And uh, yeah, that's one thing I wish I I would have done, right? I don't think I had the grades for it coming out of college, but you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. But you definitely had the spirit, I would say, coming from the sports background, the athletics background. Yeah, yeah, I guess, but you know, that's at the end of the day, you're just an athlete. At the end, you know, like you, know, you still gotta perform against other people in other arenas, right? right. Just because you were a successful athlete doesn't mean much. What do you think would be a good setup? You know, you finish your studies and then you join a consulting company. For how long should you stay there before then 
jumping ship and launching your own company? I think as long as you're learning, right? I mean, I, that can be 10 years, right? It also is, it can be 15. It, it also is very, I think, situationally dependent when you launch your own company. I mean, some people have student debt, particularly in the US, right. you know, coming out of like, is it the best thing to be an entrepreneur when you have a bunch of student debt on your head? It also can be the confluence of an idea that you really believe in. Like, I love these stories about people that leave university or leave their job. And you're like, well, then I should leave my job and I should leave university because that's what so-and-so did that was successful. But like, yeah, but that was like a particular construction moment in time where that idea and that opportunity and all those things aligned. And when you recognize that, yeah, then you have to just like balance that decision. Right. But it doesn't mean that like, you know, getting into a great university and then dropping out is like the thing that triggers success. That's not true at all. Right? Also there, right? You just hear about the people that actually made that move and succeeded, but you don't hear about the 99.999 other percent that also tried and failed with that move. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's very situationally specific, but in my case, I wasn't really like socially and mentally mature enough to run my own business until I was at least 30. So I probably, I would have stayed there 10 years, but there's plenty of people in their mid twenties that know what they want and they know how to get it. And plenty of people that start their own businesses right out of college. I always said that the most successful business people don't go to business school because they don't need to. They're already running their own business. (laughs) So, you know, like we're the second class already by being here. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, if I could go back and do that, I'd do it. I'm sure it'd be tons of work, right? Like, sure. you know, you, you gotta wear a suit, you gotta, you know, stay up late, you don't have a social life, you know, you're eating bad food late at night, like all those things. But usually when you're doing something that's a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably getting a lot of benefit from it. Right. So, and I think when I was young, I was too arrogant to think I wanted to do that much work, right? Yeah. I, I wanted, Fair point. I wanted to row and hang out with my friends. Right? <laughs> so, Different uh, priorities, so to say, which is fair. Yeah. yeah so. And now we are here in Zurich. We record this interview in Zurich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wonder how does an American from a small town in the United States end up in Zurich in Switzerland? Well, it's constantly on the top of places to live in the world. <laughs> like, all I have to do is look at it. No, but uh, seriously, um, you know, I don't know. I... Uh, my brother lives in Brazil, an older brother. So I think also from a young age and also through my adulthood, like living outside the U.S. was something totally not a foreign idea to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I always considered that I could just go anywhere I wanted to. Maybe that's it's not really true. Like uh, as I learned, it's hard to get in places. Um, but what happened is I, uh, I had done a lot of work for a hedge fund in my 20s, raising capital for them, basically traveling all over the place. And I ended up quite a bit, quite often in Geneva, not so mm-hmm. much in Zurich, but in Geneva. And I always thought it was, you know, the European lifestyle was great. I thought it was always interesting. And, you know, I, I studied actually socialism and um, kind of those forms of government and university. And so I always felt like this kind of more egalitarian societies were really an interesting way to, or better way in winning ways to live. Like, you know, you've been to America, I'm sure, like you see these huge swings in people's fortunes in the world, right? And to me that, why? Like, why do you need to do that? Like, it's much more efficient to construct a society where people, you know, have at least chances, but also that the standard of living is high. And I think that this is one thing which, as an American, you notice when you move to Europe, you're like, okay, you know, everybody's like, 
living a decent life. There's good education for the most part, I think, in, in Western Europe. And so I always had an interest in doing that. And I got a job offer in London um, after university and, uh, and moved over to London. And then I got a job offer in Germany, working for a fund there. And I spoke, well, I think many people would say I don't speak German, but I actually studied German in high school, embarrassingly enough. So I was able to kind of like work in finance in Germany, right? Um, I realized that I wasn't going to be really effective the way I wanted to be. Um, working in a Mittelstand buyout company with my level of German. I mean, like you're really going into small Bavarian companies and things like this. And there, there is where I think the culture shock of Europe hit me. Like in America, you don't find that. Like in America, you really can, despite where you come from, kind of get in if you try hard enough. I mean, sure, there's discrimination and things like that it exists, but it's not to the same degree here. I mean, there's really still like a kind of very colonial or not colonial, um, provincial way of thinking um, amongst Europeans, which is changing, but that I just wasn't going to be able to be effective there. So I decided that I would go back to to the United States and I wanted to stop in Asia on the way and do like a season of climbing there. But I got in an accident here in Switzerland and broke my spine really badly in 2010 and ended up in one of the private clinics there getting a series of operations to kind of repair myself. Uh, and then from that point on, it just made sense for me to stay there because the doctor, you know, recommended that I come back to him. Yeah. And then one thing led to another. I stayed here long enough. I got a job coaching, rowing for the local club. And, you know, I just sort of like did a bunch of things for a year, two, three, and met my wife in the meantime, who's both a Swiss and Italian. And now we're married and we're here. So, you know, I, I, I think that there are many times where you could have snapped your fingers and gone back to America. But it's actually not that easy to pick up and move continent, right? Like, once you start to put down roots, the more and more you stay. And I think that's not uncommon for people that are expats living here. You know, I know a lot of people that right. kind of that happened to them. Um, and now, of course, America is a very different place than where I left. And I think also Switzerland and Europe is a very different place than when I came. I think there's a lot more openness and a lot more opportunity to do the types of things that would have been attractive for me to do in America, like start my own company and like be able to build up a company. Like when I got out of business school, even in 2007, like you couldn't hire software developers halfway around the world. Like you just couldn't do it. Right. Sure. And so the world has changed and the opportunity set has really changed a lot, which has allowed me to kind of exist here, which is great. Nice. <laughs> and then in 2015, you actually turned your back on a very successful corporate career for good and said, now it's time to jump into the entrepreneurial world again. Yeah. And you founded yeah. Flavor Wiki. Yeah. And I just wonder, how did the idea come about? I think uh, your wife is uh, also a very important part there, right? Uh, yeah, well, maybe the idea. Um, so I, uh, when I met my wife, uh, I asked her, you know, what do you do for a living? And she said, I'm a food scientist, right? And I, I had no idea that such a profession even existed, right? <laughs> and um, so she's a more or less a, she works for a big flavor company and she's been in 15, 20 years in that career. And so I, I really, over the course of knowing her, learned more and more about how food and beverage products are really made, right? Mm -hmm. And like how those industries work, right? Um, 
And I just was fascinated by it because it seems like such a simple thing, but it's actually really complex and it's also really heavily concentrated, particularly in the Western world. Like there's these big oligopolies of companies like Nestle and Mondelez and these companies. And even on the supplier side, you know, there's only like four or five companies that supply like almost all of like the wheat and grain and things like this that go into our food. So when you think about the fact that um, you might think you have choice of what you're going to buy, right? But you actually really don't. Meagre own co-op decide what you're going to buy because you're not going to travel to France to buy your food, right? Um, so I think that those kind of strategic interactions of how that concentration of those, you know, players in the industry were were articulating themselves and the way that the products were actually coming to the consumer was really super fascinating to me. Um, and I, I could recognize right away that it was a it was an industry that was really not disrupted. It was not at all digital. It was, you know, also because this the cycles of change in the food industry are very long because food is an emotional product. You know, you tend to eat what you eat when you're a kid. And, you know, so people change their consumption habits very slowly. So I could just sort of see like, OK, this is actually something that will change, but it won't be like Uber, right? Be like won't be overnight. Right. And so for me, I was kind of like, it's very interesting, like. I, of course, it was just dinner conversation at first, right? But then as I started learning more and more about it, like kind of the lack of digitalization in this industry, I recognized that there were probably spaces where someone with my background and my skill set could do something which was in, unique and, um, and where, uh, you know, maybe current players in the industry maybe wouldn't have as many ideas, right? And for me, particularly living in Switzerland, that was really important, right? Like I didn't want to go into something where like somebody on the street in San Francisco could just think up the exact same idea and have the exact same access to this information. Like I really realized like, okay, I have unique access to learning and information. And then of course, network, like as I networked into the business, like I, right. we've learned so much about what we do from the companies we work for, right? Um, and uh, it just seemed like a good industry for me to think about doing something in digital because that was obviously what I was into at the time. I think it's the thing to be into, by the way, now, like if for the next 30 or 40 years, like you can't really go wrong in digital and AI and things. Um, and th that's kind of how it happened, right? And my wife had plays absolutely no role in the business commercially. She like almost also kind of refuses to speak about this because <laughs> there's a lot of confidentiality issues between all Makes these sense. things too. Um, yeah. But there's no doubt that uh, I would never have uh, even known about this stuff had I not not her, but I mean, that's not the most beneficial thing about my relationship with my wife, but it is something that did happen. I don't think it's un, it's, I don't think it's uncommon, by the way. Like typically, I, I think that good ideas come out of spaces where you have no domain, right? Because the way you think about something that you're very familiar with is usually the status quo, right? Like thinking very differently about something that you've spent your whole life around is unlikely. I just think the brain doesn't work that way. But when you see a new thing, which you're very naive about, and you say like, oh, why don't you do it this way and that way and this way? Like, there's lots of reasons probably why that won't work or might not work. But you come up with ideas because of your lack of knowledge about that space. Right. And that was something that was important to me. And what was the specific gap that you identify where you said, hey, this is a solution or a problem that I can solve in my company? So the original problem I was thinking about was back to this retail component. It's like when you, so if I ask you how bitter your coffee is, mm -hmm. right? You're going to give me some number on a scale of one to 10, which is an abstract scale of some sort, right? 
But actually the bitterness of your coffee or the smoothness of your coffee or these sort of ways in which we describe abstract things like taste, smell, touch, emotion, they're not hard things. Like this is a glass. I can explain to you this is a glass, it's clear. And you know what that is right away. But if I try to explain to you the way a wine tastes, you know, it's just a bunch of jargon, right? And unless you're trained in the same jargon that I have, like you really don't know what that means, right? Um, and I was like, look, you know, the number one reason why people buy food is taste, right? Like the number one reason why you repeat purchase a product that you eat is the taste, you know, like doesn't matter what the health benefit is, the vast majority of the population just won't buy it and it wasn't related to taste. And I said, well, look, you know, we could figure out a better way to help consumers buy these products, right? Because they're just buying something online. They don't have any idea what it means or what it is or how it's really going to taste. Like they're going off like a Yelp rating or something. What, what does that mean? I don't know the person that did the Yelp rating. They, have, they don't have my taste. And also because organoleptically, we all like taste differently. It's very dependent upon your gender, your ethnicity, your age. Like as you age, you actually will taste things differently. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, now with COVID, many people also recognize that you lose your sense of smell, which totally impacts your sense of taste, right? Your sense of smell is 90% of how you taste. Wow. Yeah, so I was, I was super interested in figuring out a, a way we could better sell food products online. Again, going back to this consumer problem that because I was working in an e-commerce company. And as I started to socialize this, this thing, this idea, to PhDs in the space and things like this, they're like, look, what you're describing actually is like how we do market research, right? And I was like, well, I had already sort of started to develop the technology that we use to do this profiling because I'd been doing a bunch of reading and prototyping all while I was still at, at Groupon. Um, and so I was like, well, wow, we should give this a shot for research, right? And again, because I had a bit of a network, I was able to get some of these companies to just like give me a shot to do these pilots. And we also had a good chance with uh, the accelerator here in Zurich, mm -hmm. where we did some projects with some, you know, Miro Co-op and others. And that turned out to be the immediate commercial opportunity is that, you know, the way in which you collect this type of sensory data now is all done with trained tasters or like basically people that are sat down and given a bunch of reference aromas. They're actually aromas, not products to taste. And you have to memorize what that is in your brain, right? Wow. So PepsiCo will like train people on a weekly basis to like recognize like the cola scent, the sweet scent, the orange scent, these things. And it's like, okay, on a scale of one to 100 or one to 10, you know, this is a, a, a 65. So memorize this 65. So you're basically creating a machine out of the human being because that's the only thing that can actually have this sense of identifying smells and tastes. Right. There are some technologies now that are trying to do this with molecules to identify them, like AIs, okay. which work decently well. But the problem, main problem in consumer studies is that in order to understand like, okay, which oat milk is preferred by the, by the, by the consumer group in Germany, right, which is different than the consumer group in France, right, I have to get them to try, right? And I need statistical significance on getting all these people to try. So I need like 150 or 200 people to try eight oat milks, right? Well, the way this is traditionally done and largely still done in the industry is you'll go to a market research company. They'll recruit real people who have time to come to a central place at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday, whatever, right? And they'll give all the samples out and they'll do all that work. They'll rent the space and then they'll all evaluate what's called the liking, right? So it's hedonic liking, like how much do you like one? How much do you like other? And they'll, they'll ask simple questions about that. And so then they'll figure out, okay, like these are the dominant products. 
in the in the space or they'll also figure out okay of the samples we have this one is the winning one right mm -hmm. this is how big companies develop their food products right um but then they have to also measure what are the aspects of the taste texture aroma that are driving that preference and for that they need to go to one of these trained panels right and either they have one internally which most of the big companies have very expensive, but many big multinational companies that we work with don't even have them anymore because they're so expensive to maintain. You have to basically have a whole staff of sometimes like 20, 30, 40, hundreds of people to be able to do this and you have to spend a lot of time training them. It's just not scalable at all, right? And so I looked at this as like, I, there's no wonder that if you're a food company that actually getting feedback on your product takes so long, which means it's very difficult to find a product that people actually like because by the time you actually get it to market, you know, the trend is two years old, which is the big reason actually that startups in food succeed against big companies in a small niche is because they can go out and they can talk to their buddies and their friends and they can develop like a kombucha, which totally resonates with the Zurich market and has the right brand values and all the right things because they're getting this immediate feedback, right? It's kind of like when you develop a website, you hire, you know, a company that, that, that basically outsources people around the world to look at your website and give you feedback on the button placement and the UI and the UX. That's all very fast in the digital world, right? But with food, because of this measurement problem and because of this, this logistics problem of getting the product to the person to eat it, it's, it's, it's hugely slow and it's very, very expensive. And so what we did is we said, look, we can measure the sensory piece, right? We can obviously ask people if they like something or if they don't. And people are going out and shopping. Right. So let's go get people to go out and shop for these products and evaluate them in our tool and develop a protocol, you know, and the AI and all of the things around that to get like really research quality, robust data. Right. And this took like two or three years to convince food companies to work with us enough mm -hmm. to figure out exactly how to make the approach uh, you know, not only accurate, I think it was always pretty accurate, but also figure out how to make sure that that approach and our delivery of that data and the reporting and everything fit into their internal way of working. Because, you know, again, it's a big machine, right? Like they have all these different components and they all have to work together correctly. And so that's kind of how that journey started and why we more or less are a market research company today. Like we have a global community of consumers. We have a protocol of how we get these communities to work. Like we have a whole UI in our app, which is always getting better. We're always figuring out, you know, try to make, trying to figure out ways in which we can grow the community bigger, but also monetize the community. Now we're actually starting to monetize the community from a B2C perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but the main source has always been get consumer access fast, get high quality data that's easy for the food researcher or for the marketer to use right away, right? And that's more or less the product, right? Um, it's a pretty unique niche, but it's nice to be in because it's it's tough to get this right, right. Um, and it tends to be pretty sticky, right? Like because you when you're working with a B two B company, like they don't change suppliers very often, right? Uh, and so we've just been growing naturally that way, trying to continue to focus on really doing the best job we can for the customer, which is important in our industry, like. Word of mouth is the key thing. Like we don't do a lot of marketing. I don't have a salesperson. Like people want, you have to prove you do a good job. So the best thing you can do is focus on doing the best job you can for your best customers, right? And then I they become that. your advocates. Yeah. yeah. Um, Super fascinating.
Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. I just wonder, like, what's what's the business model behind it? I mean, now you focus on the B2B case. Of course, these big companies are your clients, but what's the business case behind that? How much money can you save them with such a setup? Because that's super interesting, the way that you just described it. This is really a revolution in that specific niche that you're tackling there. Yeah, so our goal... Our goal as a company is actually to put ourselves out of business, right? In the sense that like the, the price of this type of research is very high in the market, which allows us to make a pretty good margin because our cost of execution is low. Obviously, our cost of technology development is very high. So, right. you know, although we, I mean, we are quote unquote profitable, but not very profitable. I reinvest everything into the business. Um, but our goal is actually to take this type of research and make it so easy and so accessible that more companies can do it, which is another interesting component of this is like, only the biggest multinational brands do this, right? And the reason is, is that like, if you're Nestle, like Nestle is like, they're only going to be in a market if they're top one or two in, in the shelf, right? Otherwise they just exit that brand market, right? So they want to dominate the shelf space, which allows them and other brands like them to uh, have a negotiation power with the retailer, which is very important because access to the product is actually the most important thing to being successful. Like you can have the best product as a startup. If you can't get in the shelf, you have a huge problem. So where we actually help some startups that do work with us is to build data that helps convince the buyer in the grocery company that they should put it on the shelf. Because these buyers are also making very like crazy decisions. Like I've been in meetings with these grocery buyers and they'll take like, oh, this is like a new jam, like from some place in Appenzell or whatever. Like they'll, you know, they'll take the spoon. They'll be like, that, that'll never work. Get it out of my face. Right. Like it's really like that. Wow. Like, so you have, you have an entrepreneur who's put all their effort into making a product, which is really, really good, but they just can't get distribution. And if you're Nestle, you don't have that problem because you have so much money and so much flow that every new product you bring online, you can get distribution. So their problem becomes like making sure that product is really working and then they can put all that marketing dollars behind. Um, and that's why there is big food because typically to make a brand really big, you must get that balance sheet for marketing. So the goal is to become acquired by one of these big companies, right? And so the goal we have, I have like kind of from an ethical perspective is like this should be democratized. Like you should be as easy as as, as easy as you need it to be as a startup with limited resources, you should be able to get the same capacity to evolve your product, to market it, to get the data that you need about that food product as a big player, right? At least we can help them measure, like level that playing field, right? So our goal is to actually make, you know, as I said, put ourselves out of business. But ultimately what we'll do is we'll monetize the community of people, right? Because we have really engaged people, and then we have even more engaged people who don't like to review products, but are very happy to avail themselves of a product recommendation that's using our data, right? Got it. Um, so that is, you know, basically long-term more of how we, we intend to grow, and it's mm -hmm. also our investor story in a way. Um, it's not clear that that's 
going to be so easy in the, the B2C concept. Um, what we do now from a B2B perspective is nice. Certainly our, our capacity to collect this data in an easy way is critical. And we have IP on this, right? right. So that's where we focused our time. I always say that like, it may be, may be the case that we just end up running a business that flows cash, right? It's possible, yeah. right? But uh, if that happens, it's okay. So. Fair point. I also wonder what's in for the testers, you know, that, that really participate in, in the testings and also generate the data on top of that. It really depends on the segment of user, right? Um, some users are just interested in getting cash, right? They, they sure. get a free product, right? Others find it super fun, right? So there's like a segment of the population that like find it engaging enough that they'll just kind of do it for, for not for free. I mean, of course, very few people do it for free, but they're kind of doing it for fun, yes. right? Um, but as I said, a, a, the vast majority of our users don't really review products. They actually just are interested in getting information about products. Right? Okay. Uh, and I think that's true of the society. Like if you ask 10 people on the street, would you review a product for cash or would you review the product for points or would you review a product for something? About 10% of the population will do it. It's very low. Right? So uh, Amazon reviews. Sure. These are either paid or somebody that's just like a psycho Amazon reviewer, right? Most people just don't find it valuable. That's right. Yeah, so, yeah. I'd also like to address the obstacles and challenges that you faced with building up Flavor Wiki so far. Probably the, the, the first challenge that you faced was just, you know, to get started. That's usually the biggest challenge, the first step that you take. Mm -hmm. How do you overcome that challenge? How do you just... You know, get started and also find, find the right entry point and the, the right motivation to actually get moving. Um, so I think for, for me personally, it was, in, it was energizing to find that companies were willing to talk to us. Like even from the first time we did a pitch in front of like a group of people from big companies, they wanted to have a call with us. You know, again, that didn't really mean much because they're just trying to figure out, you know, they're bored. They actually want to just talk to somebody, right? Um, and so, like, obviously, you know, not a lot of those turned into into sales. But you know, over time, the what was really motivating is like getting somebody to pay. Like, I remember the time, first time, like I, you know, got a deal where someone paid us five thousand francs, right? That's like, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know, it's like, and now looking back at that, it's like, well, that wasn't that big of a deal. But that I think you have to have these small wins. Like, you have to. You kind of have to find steps on the ladder. And if you therefore have like this huge audacious idea, which is really difficult to validate and really difficult to sort of get traction on some, you know, user or customer feedback loop, I think this is probably a very lonely place to be. Like I deliberately developed the product in a slow way because almost every day, every week, we're developing a feature that we didn't really think about before but our users and customers are coming to us and, 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 and bringing to us. And I, that, for me, that's very energizing because everything kind of seems so new. But yeah, you have to get your first, I guess you got to get your first uh, customer. And our first product was horrible, right? Like it was super old school, like built in WordPress or something. Like it was but I mean, that's part of the game, right? As Reid Hoffman famously said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've probably launched too late. Yeah, I was I was proud of it, but I mean, <laughs> but then looking like, back, yeah, you know, was, yeah. Now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and now I just under, I, I wonder why people even gave me the time of day. But you know, again, I that, I was I guess we were lucky. I think we were in an industry that was so there was such a dearth of innovation in digital 
in the food industry, especially two years ago, now of course there's more, um, that people were willing to talk to us, right? Like people from like big companies, like that knew a lot about the industry and like you could just chat with them. It's a very open industry, the food industry, that's the other thing. People are very nice. They're very secretive, but it's not like finance where it's like ultra cutthroat. Like right. they, they, people really invest in their relationships, they invest in their behavior because they know that they might end up at another big company later in their career. And so from that perspective, I think we benefited. People wanted us to succeed. We were trying to solve a problem that they had, you know. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> we already talked about your athletic career to a certain degree. You've also uh, been or are a mountain climber. You've even climbed Mount Everest. I think uh, that's also important to mention here. And, you know, there you also faced challenges. Obviously, you face risk, you face anxiety. And I just wonder if you compare being a professional athlete or a mountain climber versus being a startup entrepreneur, where do you see parallels? Where can you, you know, take some lessons that you had from sports into the startup world and vice versa? So I think, I mean, there's, of course, the obvious ones that everybody points to is like hard work, dedication, late nights, you know, ability to be uncomfortable. All of those things, I think um, they resonate because, I mean, I, There's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of days where you didn't get enough sleep the day before and you have to deal with that. I think those things, being an athlete or being doing anything well, teaches you. The thing that I think that those things help me the most with now is in my psyche, right? Like every single day, I'm super concerned that something's going to fall apart. Like... Every single day, I can find many reasons, if I think long enough, why this will never really have the outcome that I would dream of having. But because I've done both of those activities where, you know, I had to start at a very low level. I mean, I was a competitive pianist in high school. I never did a sport, right? Rowing is the first sport I ever did. Um, I think you have to start from a very low level and then you have to sort of imagine like some other level that you're going to be at. Like, okay, and you look at the people that are at that level and you evaluate them and you're like how can i be at that level because you know of course they have all these skills and features and experience that you just so far away from you at that time right mm -hmm. and and you just have to be like okay look i'm just going to take the first step right like and as one guy i climbed with or sort of climbing teacher i had when i was young he's like look you know we were in this super you know remote place in british columbia we went out for like 30 days we didn't see anybody else we just climbed mountains and like You know, I think we ran out of food for five days, crazy things like this, right? Oh. And, you know, it's just like, these are not superhuman people doing this, right? And so the, the, what this guy said is like, look, you know, it's just another day in the mountains. You're like, you're just going to get up and you're going to go do this and there's going to be some stuff that you may not want to do. But once you accept that, right, once you accept that, A, you don't know what's going to happen, right, but you're going to do your best and B, like, it might be good, it might be bad then you more or less can just keep going, right? And I have super bad days and I have super good days and I have bad weeks and I have good weeks, but I never feel safe, right? I never feel comfortable, right? Like, you know, like you might get a, a big order or a big project and you're like, oh, this is great. Like, you know, things are great. But it's like, just wait two weeks, you know, like then you're going to need another one, right? Like it just never goes away. And I think that having that type of a mentality where you constantly have to keep going forward or you're going back, but also just getting up every morning and being like, yeah, here's the battle. And we didn't come for the, we didn't come for the prize. Like we came for the battle. Yeah. And that I, I think 
is true in sport. Like if, if, if the reason you're in sport or if the reason you're in anything really is because of the prize, you will never succeed, right? Because the prize is like one, one billionth of the whole journey, right? Like it's a super tiny window of time. And typically when you reach that goal, it's anticlimactic. It's not what you imagined it would be. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the imagination of the carrot that actually drives you. Once you get the carrot, eh, whatever. I got the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really also enjoy the journey and, and be in for the journey, not just for the price. That's the core message. Also, as you get older now, I mean, like yeah. there's so many things you give up, you know, in life. I think there's so many things that, you know, you, you get 70 years old and you're like, well, I wish I would have done that, but I was too busy doing this or too busy working or too busy this. You better enjoy what you're doing, right? You better really think that it's valuable in some way, right? And I think for entrepreneurs or driven people, they can't quite explain why they think it's valuable yeah. because it's not rational, right? Like, I mean, there's, I can definitely be convinced why it would be better to go get a job, safer for my family, more sure. enjoyable, but I wouldn't be happy. So. Yeah. <laughs> you also spoke about the, the tough days and you probably also had some tough nights. And I can imagine, you know, people listening to this, they're also startup founders that obviously deal with some form of anxiety that they don't know how to cope with. Do you have any recommendations there coming from your business life or your sports life? Some lessons that you can share about how to deal with that? I mean, a little bit what I just said and also understand that like you're going to fail, right? Like I think being super comfortable being comfortable with failure is, is important, right? Like if you don't like not winning, you have to hate losing, right? But, you know, it can't be crippling. I think this is a weakness I have. I don't like hearing no. It really affects me a bit too much, particularly when I was a little bit younger. Like when someone would say no, I would like dwell on it and be like, why? Why is it? But at the end of the day, you just have to realize like yes, some people are going to say no. Like statistically, like, you know, people are going to say no. What's really important is to understand like why did they say no, right? Did they say no because what I'm core thing I'm asking them to do is something they're not interested in? Or did they say no because actually they don't really have a need for that thing, right? I think right. you have to, you have to be, you have to have a thick enough skin to hear no and then ask, okay, really, I really want to know why no. And I'm, I'm prepared to have you say that it's a dumb idea, right? Because if you say it's a dumb idea, maybe that's just not helpful. But if I ask you why no, you might give me really good information about where I should move next, right? And it's, it's the critics that are the best. I love this with users, actually. Users are great. Like, you get users and they'll, they'll complain, like, bitterly. You, you had a business that was a user business, right? Yeah. Like, they're like email you and just thrash you like oh you're so rude you shouldn't have done this you shouldn't have done that but usually like i always just turn around and say yeah like i really appreciate your feedback and i would love to get you on a phone call right would you be willing to talk to me all of a sudden they become super nice right it's amazing like how human nature works right um so i think you just have to be kind of almost looking for criticism as an athlete when you're getting coached if you go out in the boat and you row all, we, all, all practice and the coach never talks to you, that's the moment before you're getting cut, right? right? Because the coach has already decided not to invest energy in making you better, right? But if they're investing a lot of energy in making you better, then you know you're on the right track, right? So I think there's all these just like little things about how to read situations which emotion clouds, like it clouds what we think we're hearing mm -hmm. when we're that not really what we're hearing, right? But actually, the other thing I think, like, you have to have a good partner in this. Not a business partner, but a life partner. Like, you have to have a tolerant life partner who's willing to, like, tell you what for and, like, tell you wrong and 
be honest with you, right? Like my, my wife is actually very good at this. My mother was very good at this, right? Like usually the people that love you are the people that are gonna tell you you're wrong, right? Most other people won't really tell you the truth, right? And you, you have to have that give and take, right? Like even more so I think for me than having someone who like picks you up when you're down. You're like, I've been down before, right? Like I, I can deal with that one. But I think it's really having someone who is willing to say like, you're nuts, don't do this. Like that's a stupid idea. Cause right. you, you can get caught up in really bad ideas, right? <laughs> like, and that's when I think when you waste a lot of time and money is when you pursue things that are just not right and you don't see it. Yeah. I think we could do like a full episode just on that topic. I, I love it. Um, but I want to address another challenge before we move to the future outlook of you and your company. You also, you don't have any technical background per se yourself. So you said you have a, a technical team that actually built the application. So how do you tackle that? Where did you find the right people to work with and to also build that technical capability for your product to build the app and AI behind it? A lot of mistakes. Um, I mean, it, it actually, AI, like I, when I was working in the hedge fund industry at Goldman, I was doing computer-driven trading of a commodity. So okay. I, and I also worked for a, a smaller fund where we built black box trading models. So I, I had experience in working with data, but back then it was like, actually we would code a lot of things in C++ and Visual Basic, right? I didn't actually do the coding myself, but I had comfort talking about the outcomes of, you know, things that you learn from numbers. I actually really love it, right? So nice. from that perspective, the data science piece I'm more comfortable with, also because I've studied statistics. What I had to learn a lot about is like really building a software product from the ground up. When I was at Groupon, I had, I mean, I had a team that was at my disposal, of like a hundred developers, many of whom I've never met. So like I was used to making decisions about what's the ROI of a feature development? Like, and basically it's project management. Like what software development is this project management, right? Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of different tools, but I've, I run the development team and like, man, like I've made huge amounts of mistakes and wasted time and energy because we didn't have like the right deployment schedule or like we weren't using the JIRA thing the right way. Like I just had to learn it all, right? right. And to me, I always learn by doing. Like whenever I find a problem and I see that something isn't working, I just say, okay, look, I I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it for three weeks. I'm gonna do the job myself. And that's when you really start to see and lay your hands on what is the critical components because you can't expect that someone else is going to do that level of depth, right? That they're really going to think about like how to solve that problem. And right. I've one other, also one other reason why I've wanted to keep the company small is because like everything that we do, I'm able to do it to some degree myself. Certainly I don't know how to write code. Certainly I don't know how to like restart the servers or things like this, but I've through trial and error built up a team of people that I trust and redundancy and, and things like that. So. And then the, the people that you work with on the technical side, is this like an agency? Do you hire them directly? I hire them directly as okay. consultants. And where did you find them? Through your network? Or? Network, internet, okay. recruiting. I mean, actually, you can do a lot these days. I mean, again, like, God bless so many young entrepreneurs. You know, like, I work with a recruiting agency in Asia that, like, the woman used to live in Zurich, right? And, you know, they went out there and they started a recruiting business because there's just so much talent out there. And... Actually, as a person in my position, you need someone to help you sift through that and develop a recruiting process and an HR right. process. And, and these are the types of things I'm talking about that like just didn't exist 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Imagine what it will be like in another 10 years. Yeah. Like it's really scary, actually, like the competitive nature of people. And once you give them the tools to sort of break down these barriers that previously only big companies could overcome, you actually can get a lot done, right? And 
I think that the question, of course, is like whether or not these big companies will really survive um, and what is the best solution. Like Facebook is probably not the best solution for online advertising, right? But that's just because they're huge and they became lazy. There's probably lots of other great solutions that will come up that might be more fragmented, right? And I think this is just the world we're going to live in. Like, the, you know, you're going to change. You're much younger than me, but like you're going to change roles and jobs and projects so many times in your life, sure. right? You know, like it's very rare that people will stay at one job now, I think, going forward in the future. I agree. Yeah, let's talk about the future. So you currently flavor Viki Groot 400% in 2020, and you're also profitable and bootstrapped. So I think that's a really nice achievement. And I just wonder, what are your goals and plans for the next few years? Do you plan to take on any investors? Do you plan to launch additional products? What have you in store for us for the next few years? Well, uh, I mean, it's nice that we're bootstrapped, but you know, we also have the, the characteristics of a bootstrap company. I mean, we still really do a lot of things on our own. Um, I, uh, we're, we're about to take on a, our first investors, actually just a, a private person that I know who I felt would be a very good complement to my skill set. Um, I don't need the money, but I think that what I, I want to start to make a steps towards becoming like a, an investable company, right? Like you might say, oh, like you're investable, like your money, like you have a problem. Yes, I think that that's interesting. I think that's definitely something that has made people take notice, the fact that we make money. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doesn't make a, an investable business from my perspective. Like there's a lot of things that have to be done right to really make an institutional investor logically make the decision to invest in you. Like, and I know a lot of institutional right. investors invest in like people with a pitch deck and no audit trail or something like this, but I'm not that type of person. Like I, I really want to spend the next year identifying like what is the core part product market fit and what is the value we can bring in this space. Mm -hmm. And if the answer to that question is, well, we'll never be more than like an innovative market research company when we can help the food industry continue to innovate in that, in that way. And we can do that and make money doing it and, and make an impact. If that's the outcome, then I'll accept that outcome. Right. But I think that what I want, what we're trying to do now is to experiment more with other revenue streams, but also where those revenue streams can be complementary to us in fulfilling the mission we have of just like getting this data faster and more accurate and things like this. And what's cool is that our customers are on board. Like we have, we don't even bring these ideas to our customers. They actually call us up and they're like, we want you to think about how you can help us do X. I'm like, ah, interestingly enough, I was actually also thinking about that. So like, I think that I always, I wanted to, I want to continue to maintain this sort of bootstrap mentality because when you have a bootstrap mentality, it forces you to think really about the thing you do. Is that additive to your business? Will you be able to make money from it? Will it run correctly? Or are you just spending money on some crazy idea you hope will work later? I think if you have access to a lot of capital, you probably make a lot of those dumb decisions. But when you have that like right in your face, oh, that didn't work and that hurt, right? Like you, you become much sharper. And I wanna maintain that in, in what we're doing. It, it doesn't make us that attractive, I think, to institutional investors. I think investors wanna invest in something and then like force you to spend money to grow. And that's, I don't think that's, that's what we're gonna do yet. You know, we're gonna keep focusing on our customers. Right. I like that spirit. Yeah. I also think, you know, eventually if you might even sell the company one day, um, 
you even can sell it for a much lower price to get a significant share if you are bootstrapped or have very few investors in there versus the institutional investor game. Yeah, that's another thing for me. I think that, you know, there's just there's so many distortions that come into play when you bring an institutional investor on board. If you would have talked to me a year ago, I would have been even more defamatory of that. Okay. Of that. But now I start to see the benefit of it. Like as you know, we've made more money, and as I start to look at the fact that we're going to have money that we don't need, I start to think like, okay, actually, like this starts to free up my time more. Like this starts to allow me to think a little bit more strategically, right? And I do think that those things are important. And I think you, I definitely can imagine how one comes to a juncture in the business where having access to capital is totally critical. It's like you can't go the next step without access to capital because you realize like, okay, now's the time to run or now's the time to like really bring in a sophisticated partner that has all the knowledge of lawyers and network and all the rest of these things to help you. Right. Um, and you pay a lot for that, actually, I have to say. I mean, I think that, you know, oh, I, you know, investors say like, oh, I have this network. I have this like they don't really ever help that much. And you pay a lot. But I think that there's probably no other way around that in the long run. Right. If you really want to have a lot of impact. Um, right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll end up just making plenty of money to continue to grow like ourselves. But I'm hopeful that we'll encounter an investor which is really a good ideological match for us. It's what's happened with this private investor. Mm -hmm. It just was like super clear, like, okay, this is like a relationship that will work. Nice. Um, but you know, I, I didn't go looking for it, so yeah. Rumor also has it that you set a, a personal goal for yourself. Uh, actually, two personal goals. One was to climb Mount Everest, which you already accomplished. And the other one was to win a world championship. So any plans to tackle a world championship title in the few years? In, 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 in entrepreneurship or in what? In whatever you choose. Well, I actually am a world champion in rowing. Um, but I kind of, I don't care about that stuff that much anymore. Okay. I mean, my life never changed because of that stuff. I mean, I think I, now that I have a child, I, I think it's a great thing to feel a sense of accomplishment in life and the 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 um, sort of the confidence that that brings you and and you know as a parent you want to grow a competent and confident child that doesn't go to prison that's what I always say like that's right. the first thing don't go to prison <laughs> um, and I, I think look like then we we grow up and we do stuff and we have pleasure from it and then we grow old and then, you know, everybody dies. So I think that you should try to do the things you like to do and, and enjoy the adventure. And there's, for me, I want to build this company, but it's not the only thing that I want to do in the rest of my life. Um, it's just what thing I'm obsessed with at the moment. Right. And I can't, can't change that. Uh, I would like to start another company someday. I th the main regret I have is not becoming an entrepreneur earlier, right? Okay. Like this path, you know, you talked about like, like the perfect path looking back would have been like, oh yeah, become a consultant, learn a lot about these things and then go out and just like start trying to start businesses because it's super fun, right? I think I'm a bit old to do that many more times. Um, but other than that, dude, I, I want to like, you know, move to Florence and ride my bike every day. And so drink no great coffee, like start a microbrewery. Like that's what sure. I want to do. <laughs> that's cool. But that, no plans moving back to the U.S.? No, 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 no. I mean, if it happened, that would be fine. I mean, sure. I think I could be comfortable there. My my wife has family that's close here. Family's important to her. So 
my son is like fully European now. I mean, he speaks four languages already. And like, awesome. I mean, for me, I think it's so much more diverse to grow up here. Mm-hmm. Clearly, to have the option to go get educated in the U.S. or to do business in the U.S. that's great. But um, you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't plan to move back there. I can't even think of a city anymore that I want to go to. But who knows? Things could change, right? Sure. Like stay who, flexible. Yeah. Who, who knows? Like you know, things <laughs> things went kind of this way in America. They can go this way in America too. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. So we always wrap up the episodes with uh, two more question sections. The first one is about your personal gadgets and resources. Mm. Are there any books or blogs, podcasts that come to mind that you can recommend to our listeners? Uh, so I'm like a really kind of obtuse consumer of information. I don't read that often. I read a lot on the internet, but I don't read books. That's kind of embarrassing to say. I don't typically have time. I do have two podcasts that I listen to when I'm, you know, working. One's called How I Built This, which you yeah. probably know. Fantastic yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, I think what's very interesting about that is that uh, every once in a while, like they have enough diversity of different types of businesses that you can kind of like relate to like usually one part of almost every episode. Right. Um, I like that a lot. And so that's a, one I like. I also like one called um, Waking Up with this guy called Sam Harris, who's a Stanford grad. Many people don't like him. He has this like unique political views. But uh He's kind of like a, you would call him like a very critical thinker, right? And this, I think, is also important when you're building a business. Is like, if you establish that you want to operate in a certain way in your life and in your business, right? You have to examine how you're operating yourself, right? Like, you have to examine your own personal behavior. And, you know, he interviews a lot of politicians and people like this that, you know, he kind of looks at the world that way. And I enjoy that. Cool. I think it's... I'm definitely going to check that out. I haven't heard about it yet. It's, I mean, he has some controversial views. If you know, he's, Sure. Yeah, he's, it's interesting to see and then you can do whatever you want with that, right? Exactly. I mean, I think what's interesting is like how you process the information in the world, right? Like, and this is going on now with all this craziness you see politically and the distortions in the media. And, you know, I don't even go on one side of the issue or not. Like, I don't say like, this is a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy theory. It's like, at the end of the day, like, you need to try to process the information you have. And that's all you can also do as an entrepreneur. Like you can only make decisions on the information that you're able to get, right? Sure. And so if you exercise the way you think about the information available to you, maybe you become more effective. Yeah. So, so the very last section are the rapid fire questions. Okay. I either give you a short question or a selection where you can choose from. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. So the first one is lake or mountains? Mountains. That makes sense. Yeah. Your climbing history, Mount Everest or world champion? Oh, climbing is far more um, was far more satisfying. Okay. And where do you actually go to think? Oh god, that's almost embarrassing. I go running, right? Okay. Actually, yeah. You know, I think the endorphins of exercise actually does something to your brain that allows you to see things from a different angle. Right. Unfortunately, I don't exercise as much as I'd like anymore. It's a weekend thing. You have a lot on your plate at the moment. Builder or investor? Oh, builder for me. Clear one. Yeah. Yeah. How many hours do you work on a regular day? Usually started, I started eight, usually ended. Well, my wife hopefully will not listen to this. I I tell her she go, I go to bed at 12 and sometimes it's afterwards. Okay. Fair point. But I I take a break to, you know, be with the family. Sure. And how many hours do you sleep? Well, do the math. Uh, It's usually between five and and seven, right? Yeah, I can typically live on five hours of sleep a day for a couple of days. 
And what makes you smile? Oh, my kid. Yeah, I think that's fun. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the last one, Switzerland or United States? Oh, that's very hard. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for me, it's Switzerland. But uh, I mean, I, I find myself defending Switzerland constantly, actually. Right. I mean, I, I'm glad, grateful to live here. I'm not a citizen. I, I could take the passport if I take the test. But uh, I think it's a it's a nice place. No place is perfect. Right. But sure. for sure. For me, for my personality, my desires in life, Switzerland is better than the U.S. Yeah. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing the journey with us. It was a lot of fun recording this episode. And we wish you all the best and lots of success with Flavor Vicky, but also everything else you will tackle in the future. Great. Thanks. This is super cool. And I'm going to listen to more of your episodes as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.